from the Twin Cities PBS archives, a conversation with Clyde Bellacord, originally broadcast in 1991. He's a native Minnesotan and a member of the Mississippi Band of the Chippewa Nation. He's known internationally as one of the founding members of the American Indian Movement and as a tireless advocate for Native American causes. With us on Portrait, Clyde Bellacourt. Tell me your uh, traditional name. My uh, traditional name, uh, Anishinaabe name, would be Niga, in the way we do. And that would simply, uh, was gotten in a vision, you know, a man went and fasted for four days, uh, the same gentleman I talked about earlier, the spiritual leader, Eddie Benton Benet. And on the third night, what he saw, he saw this rain, this storm coming, this dark cloud coming, and pretty soon it started lightning, and the trees started blowing, and just as it started to rain, it started to thunder, you know, and it started to drizzle, he woke up. That's how you get names in the Indian way, you know. So my name is uh, Nigan, the way we do. I'm the thunder before the storm. What was it like growing up on the White Earth Indian Reservation in the 40s and 50s? Well, I grew up in a uh, family of uh, 12 children. I have seven sisters and five brothers. Uh, my father was a First World War veteran. He fought in the Marine Corps. He was one of the first Marines to to land over there, and uh, he came home with uh, 17 machine gun wounds. He was gassed, the mustard gas, and bloated, and yet fathered uh, 12 uh, children. And it wasn't until uh, 1924 that we were given uh, citizenship. So there was over 50,000 Indians actually fought in the First World War and were not even uh, considered citizens in their own country. So I grew up in uh, an, a small uh, community on the White Earth Chippewa Reservation where they had just a public school and a parochial school. It was a situation where if you didn't make it in the uh, public school, if you start having problems, truancy, not getting along, they would always uh, threaten you. They would say, well, if you, know, if you don't get along here, we're going to send you out there and let those uh, nuns take care of you. And the nuns to us was the uh, St. Benedict's Mission, about five miles out of town, where they uh, bust you out. It was a very uh, strict uh, disciplinary type of school. Uh, the Benedictines were kind of like the law enforcement arm of the Catholic Church. They were one of the uh, denominations that was sent in when all others failed to uh, Christianize or so-called civilize the, uh, the Indian people. And what that meant is they were attempting to strip us of our Indian culture, our language, our traditions, and et cetera, and uh, make us so-called one of the, the melting pot. I went to that uh, particular school because I didn't make it. I didn't get along to public school. It was really difficult uh, for me to believe that uh, a man in high heel shoes and silk stockings, little white silk stockings, little ruffle shirt and black britches, a blonde wig with rouge on his cheeks and wooden teeth was the father of our country. You know, I had problems with that. I had problems with, with a man by the name of uh, Christopher Columbus, you know, who I found out later was something like uh, 18,000 miles off his course, floundering in the seas, lost, and landed here in so-called discovered America. But the only thing I found out later that he discovered was that he was lost. So I asked a lot of questions, and I didn't get a lot of answers, and uh, I found it very difficult. It was when I went to the mission school, 
And uh, I mention this because it fits hundreds and thousands of Indian people in America today, or around my age, you know, in 50-year bracket. Uh, it was a place where if you didn't go to school, if you didn't go to church on Sunday, they would line you up in front of the blackboards on Monday morning, they'd whack your hands with rulers. And of course, myself, you know, I was the kind of person that liked to go out and fish bullheads and camp out overnight and run the woods and hunt and et cetera. So I found myself up in front of the blackboard a lot on uh, Monday morning. Finally got to the point where they would turn your hands over and they'd whack you with the, with the side of the, the ruler until your uh, knuckles bled. And of course, I started to run away from that. And uh, early in life, when I was only uh, 11 years old, going on 12, I was brought before a juvenile court judge like hundreds and thousands of other Indian people in this country. And I was given a choice to go back to uh, mission school, be placed on uh, probation, apologize, go to church every Sunday, go to school every day, or go to a, a little place called the Red Wing State Training School, about 40 miles, uh, 45 miles southwest of the Twin Cities here. And they told me that was a nice place, you know, you went to, it's like a Boy Scout setting where you went camping in the summer and you rode horses, and they painted such a beautiful picture that I chose uh, to go there when I was only 12 years old. I was one of the first Indians to be sent away from my reservation, 300 miles away from home, and uh, put in the Red Wing State Training School. Um, I was told I'd be there for two to six months. My case would be reviewed, and I'd be put in some type of place, either come back home, uh, go away to a boarding school, or, or be placed on some type of uh, supervision. I spent three years there in Red Wing. And it wasn't a Boy Scout camp. It was, a, it was like a military school where you put on uniforms every day, and you marched in line, they had silent uh, treatment, and when you're in a dino, you weren't allowed to talk, and only certain times a day you were allowed to, to uh, converse and talk to other inmates. It's a place where you weeded gardens every day, and you cleaned ditches and rocks. It was almost like a chain gang. You cut lawns and shovel coal cars and et cetera. And that was my beginning. I, I spent three years there, and finally when I was released from Stillwater State Prison in 1962, I had uh, accumulated close to 14 years of my life in correctional institutions, as hundreds and thousands of uh, Indian people have over the years. What happened um, after Red Wing, uh, were you hardened? Uh, were you, were I, I don't think so. Uh, most of my, most of the things I got in were non-violent type of uh, situation. Most of them were just pro-violation type of charges. Didn't go to school, didn't have a job, or would be uh, sent back and do some more, some more time. Finally, in uh, 1962, I met a young spiritual leader in Stillwater State Prison. It was kind of a turning point in my life. Um, we formulated an Indian studies program there, one of the first Indian education programs in the nation. Started right in prison. And we uh, taught Indian culture and tradition. We learned about our history, our background, our clan system. I started feeling good about myself again and uh, hundreds of other Indian people that were serving time in Stillwater had joined that group. And, we felt, well, you know, if we can do these things inside and we can turn our lives around in prison, you know, why can't we do this on the streets? So that, that philosophy of self-determination that uh, was created and started uh, 
and uh, Stillwater was brought out here into the, the streets and was to become later the uh, formation of the American Indian Movement. So you received your education at the hands of the white man's justice system. Right, right, yep. I, I, I got mine uh, kind of like the old uh, Bob Dylan uh, songs, Highway 61 uh, Revisited, you know. That's where I had received my education in the different institutions uh, between my reservation and Stillwater State Prison. Were you a tough kid? It strikes me you're a big guy and you were one of 12 kids. You must have been tough. Well, I wasn't always big. <laughs> I had a heart attack uh, three years ago and I've, you know, I've gained a lot of weight. But I always weighed around 160, 175, 180. I had uh, participated a lot in sports, uh, basketball, softball, uh, football. I had aspired uh, to be a fighter at one time, a boxer. I boxed uh, amateur and both professional. I had a brother that won the Upper Midwest Light Heavyweight Championship in 1949 and 50, and I, he was kind of an idol of mine, and I, I wanted to do the uh, same things, but it seemed like every time I would get started in that area, you know, I'd end up in some type of trouble. So were you different from your siblings? Were, were you the so-called black sheep? Well, yes, I was that, and uh, in the uh, institutions where I was at, I found out, you know, I didn't know until later on, but that's where I developed my organizational uh, skills. I was always able to organize softball teams, boxing teams, football, and uh, I was always able to organize in people, and, and we always excelled in all those sports. I mean, we held all the championships in the institutions that I, that I had served uh, time in, so... Recognizing that when the uh, American Indian Folklore Group was formed in, in 1962 in Stillwater, I was asked to help organize that. I was doing solitary confinement at the time. I was locked up. I was refusing to go to work. I didn't want nothing to do with anyone anymore. i just kind of given up. And uh, like I say, I met a young Indian uh, spiritual leader. His name is uh, Eddie Benton Benet. Today he's a well-known educator. He develops Indian uh, curricula. He's a Madewan uh, medicine man today. But I met him in, in jail, and it was a it was kind of a turning point in my life. Uh, there was a young non-Indian caseworker named Jim Donahue, who is now a probation officer for the city of Minneapolis. But he uh, realized that there was a high percentage of Indian people in the correctional system in the state of Minnesota. We make up less than one-half of one percent of the total population. But in Stillwater State Prison, when I was there, 20 percent of the population was Indian. In St. Cloud, uh, something like 17 percent. And you just go on and on. Red Wing, 35, 40 percent were Indian. So he knew something was wrong. He knew that Indian people weren't getting into skilled and technical trades. You know, they'd make license plates and farm machinery and, and, and stuff for the state. They weren't getting into higher education. They weren't dealing with their alcohol and, and uh, drug problems. When they go to before the pro board, they didn't have nothing to say. No plans were worked out. Even though we were the best behaved and in there for the lesser crimes, we were doing the most time. So this young non-Indian uh, caseworker recognized that and was, uh, they came to me in the hole and asked me if I'd help pull the Indian community together. We're going to start a group where we can get the Indian people to open up and start addressing some of these problems. And I was chosen to, to because I knew them. I grew up with all these uh, young men that were in jail. I was, I was chosen to, to go out and organize them. I did a, quite a successful job at it. And to now, to now today, that program is still going. Not only in Stillwater, we have them going in every institution in the state of Minnesota. 
some of the most successful programs and, and corrections today are run by the Indian inmates in these institutions. What was life like for Indian people in Minnesota in that era? <clears throat> well, in 1968, I was, I was uh, employed and working at Northern States Power Company. I was a, I was a first-class engineer. I had a career pretty well uh, set out in life. I was living in northeast Minneapolis, raising a, married and uh, raising a family. But I was also acutely aware of the uh, poverty-stricken conditions that Indian people were forced to live under here in their own land, America. I became, uh, I was appointed to a special uh, commission in the uh, latter part of 1967 uh, into 1968, and we did a national study. It was the first time in our history where Indian people formulated a commission to, to study the conditions that we were, we were forced to live under the uh, Bureau of Indian Affairs. And it was a study to determine the breakdown of the federal trust relationship and namely the Bureau of Indian Affairs handling of Indian, uh, Indian Affairs in uh, America. And we logged over 100,000 miles into reservations and urban areas. And the latter part of 1969, we finally uh, concluded our study and we released a book called Our Brother's Keeper, The Indian in White America. And it was astounding, you know, to find out what the real conditions of Indian people were, you know, because, you know, in America, when you have a 9% unemployment rate and it starts creeping up, everybody gets upset and they talk about recession. And I, we, I found out we were living, been living in a recession for a couple of hundred years. Uh, our unemployment rate was right here in the city of Minneapolis was set at 65 to 70 percent. On a national level, it was set at 70 percent. It said that 70 percent of our young people entering high school were not uh, completing it. Uh, the gross annual income of Indian people uh, was set at $1,500 a year. Uh, the housing conditions, they said that 90% of Indian housing was substandard and something like 72% didn't have inside plumbing fixtures or running water. Uh, we found out that because of the introduction of alcohol, that was uh, to us the first form of chemical warfare used here in America, successfully against Indian people. We had no trace of alcohol in our culture uh, prior to uh, Columbus. and taking and bunching all these poverty-stricken uh, conditions together, we found out one of the most drastic uh, statistics of all, that we had a suicidal rate seven times the national average, something that was virtually unknown in pre-Columbus uh, uh, days. So it was the basis of that study and that information that brought about the formation of the American Indian Movement. Of course, you're one of the founders of the American Indian Movement of AIM, and I'm interested in your role historically as an AIM leader. Um, from my reading, it seems to me that if Russell Means was the firebrand, uh, the rabble-rouser, um, that you were in some ways the diplomat or the negotiator. Uh, well, is that I right? I guess I've been a little bit of everything, but I, 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 yeah, I'd say that I was uh, the diplomat and negotiator and the organizer. In public, you come across as a tough guy. Uh, very outspoken, sort of with a hard edge. Um, am I right? I and mean, sometimes there's that. Well, perception. this is this is a war. <laughs> We're talking about a war that's been waged against Indian people. You know, one yeah. of the longest wars in the world has been waged against Indian people now for 500 years. But I'm not. You know, I'm not yeah, contradicting. I mean, my, my we question. have to be tough. I have to be tough. You know, we got to get out. You know, we're we're such a small minority that we knew that we had to carry our struggle into the streets. We had to become vocal. 
you know, we had to use whatever means necessary to change these uh, conditions that, that we live under. The flip side of that coin, it seems to me, from talking to people who know you, is that they know you well. They actually say that you're quite moderate and a low-key person, and um, that there's some difference between the public persona and the private persona. Well, I, I, I think there is. You know, I, I, um, you know, I can walk into the Hard Earth Survival School and have uh, 100 kids that are no, no way related to Bloodwise if they call me uncle, you know, and I'm their, I'm their, I'm their uncle. In the same way in the in, in, uh, community, and because I'm concerned and I, and I care about them, and I wouldn't want any of them to, to go through what I went through in life. I wouldn't want any of them to ever set foot in a correctional institution, and that's my commitment. My part of the American Indian movement has been with, with the little ones. In 1986, Clyde Belcourt, one of the founding fathers of AIM, a guy who commands enormous respect in his community, is arrested, convicted, selling LSD, as I recall, and was sent to prison in handcuffs. Um, now, without retrying the case here on television, how did that happen? Well, you know, I, I quit drinking uh, 16 years ago because I knew the tremendous uh, effect that it not only had on my life, but almost everybody that's been in trouble in our community is related to uh, alcohol. But three years before I, before I uh, got into this uh, trouble, I was uh, offered some, uh, and I talk about this. I go around to high schools today, and particularly to youth, you know, and I, and I talk about this uh, particular part of my life because I never ever dreamt that anything like this would, would happen to me. Uh, again, I would never ever be in uh, jail again, and I got into to uh, utilizing uh, cocaine. It was brought to me. I believed. I believe today that the person that brought that to me, I cannot prove it in any way, but I believe that he was an agent, and I got hooked on it. I got to the point where I was using it every day of the week. I started neglecting the things I was doing. I wouldn't go to meetings anymore. I didn't go to school. I didn't do any of the things that I should be doing. And one day I was, I, was, I was stopped, and I was busted. And it was one of the most painful periods of my life. I, I know today, I believe today, that if I'd have had a gun handy, you know, if I'd have had a gun handy, I'd have probably blown myself away. I was so ashamed of what I've done. And I can never in, in my life to this day ever explain the feelings that I had in, in me. And I talk about this a lot because uh, the suffering and the pain and the shame that, that I went through, that I carried myself. I carried that back into, into uh, jail with me. And it took me six months. It was a six-month struggle to get rid of that. But I was able to do it through my uh, belief in Indian uh, tradition, Indian culture, Indian religion. I was able to come out of that. Today, I look at it as, uh, as the Great Spirit was looking out for me. Had it not happened to me, I wouldn't be here today. I sincerely believe that because I was using every day of the year. And uh, I, uh, since this has happened to me, I haven't touched anything. I don't, I don't go near alcohol. I, wouldn't, I, wouldn't allow any, I don't even allow people to smoke in my car, in my house, cigarettes. I mean, I've just gotten rid of everything. And I know that that has to be that way. You know, and I have to uh, utilize this particular period and this pain and suffering that I went through to bring that message to other young people. And I do that every day of the week. The programs that I operate today, I demand 
in every one of them, every program that I'm involved in town, I demand that they're alcohol and drug free. I've gotten uh, tobacco taken out of many of the programs I'm involved in today. There's even been some joking and kidding going around the community. You know, Clyde Belker's turned into a preacher. Well, you know, I mean, I've been called worse than that. I feel good uh, today, and I, I really believe that. I really believe that the Great Spirit uh, was looking out for me, and he put me, set me aside for, for 22 months to take a close inventory of what I was doing. And I think that I'm more effective now in what I'm doing than I've ever been in any period of my life. Part of your prison experience also was a heart attack. Right. Tell us about that. Well, I had a, uh, in uh, September 16th of uh, 1987, I suffered a, uh, a uh, heart attack at uh, Rochester Medical Center, uh, about 85 miles south of here in Rochester, Minnesota. I had a heart attack approximately. Uh, Is that in prison? Right, in prison at 12.30 in a medical center at 12.30 at night and I called and uh, they brought a doctor that was uh, on contract from Mayo Clinic and he was pretty tired. He got a little irritated me because of my, I couldn't move my arm, I was in tremendous pain and he tried to put it off as indigestion. And instead of taking me over to the hospital and giving me an electrocardiogram, I got an argument, I'm in the process of arguing him, I had a lieutenant threaten to throw me in a hole so I knew, well I better shut up now because they put me in a hole I'll never walk out of here. I knew I was having a heart attack and I was in great pain. And I sat up all night. They gave me an antacid, and I sat up all night. About 4.30 in the morning, I went out, and I, had to, I knew I had to get a drink of water because I was so dry and so thirsty and so weak. So I walked down the hallway, got a drink of cold water, and just barely made it back to bed. And the inmates that were in the cell, these two Indian inmates that were in the cell were kind of taking care of me. They put pillows up behind my back. But when I sat down, they were, they were sleeping then, about 4.30. I sat on bed, and next thing I knew, I passed out. And I, I come through at, uh, it was 6.30 in the morning, and I knew that I couldn't go back to sleep. As weak as I was, I knew that if I went back to sleep, I'd never, I'd never walk out of there. And uh, again, at 7 o'clock, another guard come to my room, and he said, Mr. Balky, you don't look well. Didn't, didn't bother to call an early or call a doctor or call a nurse to come and get me. Told me that I better go to the, to the hospital, which was about two blocks away. So I was forced to walk over there. With, under that, I already had a heart attack that night. I sat in the hospital from 7.30 in the morning until 9.45 before they finally administered an electrocardiogram. They discovered at that point that I had had a second heart attack and finally took me down to uh, Mayo Clinic and an angiogram they gave me the next day. They found out that one of my arteries, which they could have preserved and saved if they had dealt with me that night, was completely closed. Another one was 80% uh, closed, another one 40% closed. And once your artery closes up on you, the muscle starts to immediately deteriorate in that area, and they can't do a, they can't do a bypass or anything. So I've been, you know, I've been forced to to live with that uh, since then. Have actually uh, filed a pretty uh, multi-million-dollar lawsuit against the department. I heard for I that. heard that um, a dentist was actually the first one to treat you. Well, I, I had a dental appointment at 9:15 that morning, and the dentist came in to uh, get me for the dental appointment. I, he helped me into the dental, and I got in the dental office, and he said, well, geez, you don't look pretty rugged. You know, you look pretty bad. I said, yeah, I, said, I think I'm having a heart attack. And he got scared, and he took me back into the waiting room and started talking to the doctor and said, hey, you better look at this guy. And they were taking care of people with colds and sore legs and sore backs and flu and stuff like that, and just letting me set it out, you know. And I, uh, I really believe that <laughs> it was an effort to do away with me.
mm-hmm. you know, because of my uh, political and my religious beliefs. How were you changed um, by those experiences? Uh, one, that you described the shame and the self-doubt and then the introspection and then this incredible uh, life and death experience. Uh, when you came out, uh, how were you different? Well, I, you know, I, I went through uh, quite a uh, spiritual experience during this uh, period of time. I had, uh, I was honored and to have so much support out here. I had medicine men, spiritual leaders that traveled from across America to come in and conduct ceremonies for me and healing ceremonies and et cetera. And I, you know, kind of made a commitment that, you know, to between myself and Mashomish, uh, uh, who we call grandfather, Gichimanetu, the great spirit that. You know, if, I were, if he ever allowed me to walk free again and be with my people, I would never, ever allow anything like this to, to come between me and, and my community, the people that I love so very much. And uh, like I say, it was, it was a tremendous experience, and it was a good experience. You know, I mean, it's hard for somebody to say, hey, I went to jail and did 22 months, but I feel good about it. But I do. I feel good about it because it was a cleansing time. It was a time for cleansing, and I and I came out there with the strength to, to uh, carry on the the much needed work that has yet to be done. I've heard that in the early days of AIM, uh, you would often bring your children to meetings, and that family is very important to you. Uh, why? Well, I think that uh, I got two sons, uh, for instance, and I I try to teach them as much as possible of, of what this struggle is all about and what has to be carried on. I'm 54 years old, and I've had um, I've had a very serious uh, heart attack, you know. So I'm kind of living on. Uh, sometimes I think on uh, borrowed time. I don't feel that way, you know. It hasn't slowed me me down at all. But I'm very concerned about leadership. I'm very concerned about uh, young people developing those skills to take control, uh, because I believe in the age-old prophecies. You know, we're we're kind of what uh, I call the fifth generation, the American Indian movement that was founded. Our children are the sixth generation. Their children are the seventh generation. That's our grandchildren that are coming up. And supposedly in our prophecies that it says that the seventh generation is where our, our leadership and our strength and our knowledge and wisdom and everything will come back. I sincerely believe in that. I believe in the, the little people and I believe that that's where our power lies. And, and I think it would be good for all of America to start believing that way. Thank you, Clyde, for being here on Portrait. Funding for this TPT archival podcast was made possible by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund.